Welcome back to the 10th episode of Origins and Evolution with Frank Laukin and Dimitar Sasilov. This episode will discuss the formation and evolution of the Earth itself in order to set the stage for the early evolution later of life on Earth. So, the first question is for Dimitar. When did the Sun form and how long thereafter did the Earth initially form as well? Uh, the Sun formed about four and a half billion years ago. We know that from studying the Sun directly. It's aged pretty accurately. And then, within 30 to 50 million years later, one of the rocky planets uh, that had been accumulating in the inner part of its uh, debris disk had a major giant impact with a smaller body, however, similar to the size of today's Mars. And as a result of that, we have the final makeup of our planet Earth. Plus, we got as a bonus satellite, a moon, which we call the moon. Uh, that's considered the uh, starting point uh, of uh, the history of planet Earth. That's so, the T equals zero for Earth, so to speak. Correct. Yeah. So we count everything from that point on, including any geological record. Is it true that the moon uh, was much closer to Earth at the, at the time? Yes, there is actually an Italian novel writer who even wrote a short story about that, uh, how people were jumping from high mountains <laughs> onto the moon. But it was not that close. Um, you can imagine uh, the impact produced a very high temperature and very flattened disk for a while uh, around the Earth. The Earth looked a little bit like a mini Saturn yeah. with ring uh, around it, but very hot ring, unlike Saturn, which is ice. And from that, uh, the moon condensed much closer than it is uh, today, about um, you know one-third of the distance or less. The moon has been continuously moving away on its orbit, away from the Earth. Uh, this is an exchange of energy between rotation and spin, which is mediated by the tides, uh, tides of the Earth on the Moon, which synchronized it eventually, and of course tides of the Moon on the Earth, which caused this uh, departure. Has, has that uh, elongated the day or made it shorter here on Earth? Uh, it always elongates the day. So the spin of the Earth slows down, the orbit of the Moon gets larger, and the Moon orbital period also gets larger, so that's the exchange. Remarkable then under these challenging conditions after Earth had cooled down uh, far enough and we could have liquid oceans, life could uh, form so early at only 3.8 to 4.0 billion years ago. Of course, it was unicellular life, um, but with giant tides and a um, still fairly different atmosphere and climate, although we'll talk about that in the next episode of this podcast these were fruitful times, but also challenging times. What was m most conducive or most challenging for life in the subsequent further geological evolution of our planet? Well, there are many challenges early on. One of them is uh, impacts. The solar system, like every planetary system that we discover nowadays, including debris disk, nascent planetary systems, is full of material. It takes time for that material which led to the accumulation and the formation of the individual planets to be cleared away, so to say. It happens on a dynamical time scale, and that means that the orbits of smaller bodies are perturbed by the planets all the time. 
there is uh, a lot of orbits that cross our orbit, and many of these end up in impacts. And these are big impacts. We, of course, uh, know that there were no major impacts similar to the moon-forming impact after that happened. But there is also enough evidence um, in some of the early uh, data from zircons and very early uh, Archean rocks that impact activity continued. We see it on the moon and on Mars at cratering. So that's, I would say, that's probably the major kind of catastrophic disruption because it changes the atmosphere. And the moon is such a good astronomical museum for us because it doesn't have any atmosphere, therefore no wind, rain, or erosion, and also has no tectonic shifts or volcanic activity, at least not recently. Essentially, the moon is this very stable museum where nothing ever changes, even over billions of years. So when we look at the impact craters on moon, which... um, we can imagine how challenging early life was. And I believe these, as the main asteroid belt was pulled into the inner solar system, these impacts were much more frequent than they are today. Is much more frequent, and also the size distribution was different. There were a lot violent. of, yeah, there were a few big bodies that hit us. Uh, it's not that that cannot happen today, but the probability is now vanishingly small compared to back then. It obviously happened 65 million years ago, and we'll be talking about that, the great asteroid impact that uh, led to the extinction of the, of the large dinosaurs. Of course, the birds survived from the dinosaur line. There were some further challenges that maybe you could explain to us a little bit, and many of them came in glaciation, which is the scientific term for Earth freezing over substantially and, and, and later on even completely. But maybe let's start with the earlier glaciation events that, um, that we discussed earlier. Dimitar, can you give us a bit of an idea of that and how that, and then we have to talk and mix in climate a little bit because, of course, the great oxidation event, which we'll explain in another episode, but it had, a, it had an impact on Earth. Yeah, gl- glaciation is uh, definitely... Uh, something our planet has to contend with on a periodic basis, and it did for sure in the past as well. Uh, There is one clear uh, reason why this would be the case. It's called the faint young sun uh, problem. We know now from astrophysics uh, that has been well developed that uh, uh, younger stars, at least in their first uh, billion years of their existence, similar to the sun, about 25 to 30% less luminous. So the sun provided less heat at the time to the point where uh, a body without that atmosphere would be absolutely frozen. So the atmosphere, as it does today, even in the past, more importantly in the past, provided that blanket, greenhouse warming, but more significant than uh, we see today, to keep uh, some uh, of the water on the surface of the planet liquid. Now, we know that from the mineralogical formation of some of the zircons, which go back 4.4 billion years old, that this was the case. There was liquid water, and there was access of the surface of that water to the atmosphere, at least occasionally. But glaciations uh, definitely occurred, as we see from the earliest record, at least going back to 3.5, 3.6 billion years ago, that we see what are called drop stones. 
which occur uh, on big glaciers, moraine uh, formations in the sedimentary rocks. I have to point something out, though, which we sometimes forget. We think of the Earth as a kind of looking more or less the same today as it did back then in terms of a distribution of oceans versus continents and so on. Early Earth, and particularly the first half a billion years, was much more of an ocean planet than it is today. It was not as much land mass as uh, there is today for two reasons. The first reason is a lot of the land mass which you see today on the Earth is continental crust. Continental crust is, so to say, cooked rock. It is not the original rock that comes from the mantle from the interior of the Earth, which is more basalt, which is at the bottom of the oceans. There is a difference in density between the two. And you can think of continents as kind of floating above the mantle compared to the basalt bottom of the ocean floor, which is denser and kind of is depressed lower. Uh, that small difference of a few kilometers actually makes enough of a difference so that all the water pools above the basalt and then the continents tend to be dry. So that has something to do with the dynamics of glaciation because it's easy to retain a, a glacial ice sheet on top of dry continental crust, while it's more difficult to freeze an ocean all the way to the bottom, as you know from lakes uh, up here in New England. They don't always, you know, never actually freeze all the way to the bottom. So if you have fewer continents and less subaerial landmass, glaciation is also a different kind of different thing. You have to think slightly more creatively about what you mean by glaciation. So certainly an interesting time for life at that time uh, with, with glaciation and uh, we'll come to the climate evolution at a later time, but then one of the things that many people do not know about is how incredibly dangerous our planet was from a geological point of view for life and its further evolution, not only from a climate point of view, but we had six, at least six known major extinction events, as they are called, in roughly the last half billion years, 500 million years. It is now being understood that five of them were due to so-called massive volcano eruptions. We're not talking about a major or a super volcano eruption. There might be one under Yellowstone National Park. Massive volcano eruptions are also either a series or accumulation of super volcano eruptions, or you could think of them more or less as a continent or a region of a continent having a major fissure. Think about a fissure that's a, a lava break that's a mile wide and a, a waves of waves of, of, of lava rolling over continents, of course, also into the ocean. That's very different from our experience, even with the biggest volcano eruptions or the recent explosive volcano eruption that we just observed uh, on one of the islands in, in, I believe, near Polynesia. Anyway, so there were at least five of these massive volcano eruptions many of them probably including fissures of the Earth's crust that went on for millions of years ago and inundated certain regions of our 
prior continents, Pangaea and other continental formations. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened to life during those massive, uh, mass- massive volcano eruptions? Earlier I called them major extinction events, but uh, it was dramatic. It's not a good day, that's for sure. Not even a good year, let alone maybe a whole eon. Yes, uh, some of my colleagues really very much into studying those events. They're certainly out there in the geological record. They're fascinating. How to predict them and how they actually are triggered and occur is still a mystery, I would say, and it's actively researched. But uh, they absolutely have a major effect on the surface conditions on the whole planet. And of course, the atmosphere, but I would say surface conditions, because you would produce so much of uh, sudden outburst of gases and dust particles, just like we saw in the Tonga eruption um, last month, but on a proportion much larger, that you're going to temporarily change the makeup of the atmosphere. There is no question that the atmosphere globally is going to be different. I mean, to some extent, you know, you can think of uh, uh, life forms that are used to having access to some of these conditions as well as to gases in the atmosphere not having it for a prolonged period of time. Number two, uh, you have the effect which has been popularized uh, last century as the nuclear winter effect. I mean, it's similar to that, a lot of gas as well as particles that form hazes are produced, and they block the sunlight. So anything that depends on the sunlight would actually die off. And blocking the sunlight has the effect of cooling, ironically. It's not a greenhouse effect in this case. It actually cools off, and something dramatic like that will freeze off rather than cool off. I mean, it will be a major temperature difference. So these major extinction events... They are appropriately named, and in several of them, um, it is thought that up to 75% of all living species, eventually plant and animal species, were extinct. And by the way, also in the oceans, uh, of course, sunlight and and lack of nutrition also affects the oceans, and ocean acidification can change the conditions so much that our usually finely adjusted plant or, or animal or, or unicellular organisms usually are somewhat resilient and robust, but when there's a major change of either oxygen dissolved in water or atmospheric oxygen or acidification, many of them just cannot survive and cannot evolve fast enough. The more remarkable fact, perhaps, is that 25% of the species survived. And what usually happens then is that all these ecological niches are empty. And then we have several times after these major tragic, but that's a human term, that's a human perspective, but after these major extinction events, we see very, very rapid radiation, as we call it, of new species, plant and animal species, into ecological niches, but also just a dramatic multiplication that cannot be, in my opinion, explained by the traditional modern synthesis approach where we wait for random mutations to generate that much coherent and additive 
change that can then be selected by natural selection, but a lot of it is pre-existing genetic diversification and diversity, which can then be selected. That still works with the traditional models of evolution, which is entirely genome-based. As I've explained in my book, Active Biological Evolution, by that time, life had also evolved advanced evolutionary processes that could allow environmental feedback to quickly adjust the phenotypes. Phenotypes at a molecular level is epigenetic. It is proteomic, epiproteomic changes, which then later on through advanced feedback mechanisms could then be used for modifying the transcriptome, the messenger RNA, and eventually even the somatic and the germline DNA. So in this case, some of the rapid evolution probably occurred at the phenome and epigenetic level before it was then, so to s- not written in stone, but written in genes, uh, with genes as followers to where genes then protected the high-fidelity long-term storage of what was rapidly evolving and being selected for at the phenome level. Both of these things interacted. Yeah, Frank, actually following up on exactly what you said now, I want to uh, kind of uh, go further and ask you a question about this. Basically, um, we know that the environment on the Earth, whether early on or even later on, is punctuated by this kind of events. The large provinces with the volcanic uh, provinces and eruptions, impacts which are kind of similar in some sense, but always provide a catastrophic but slightly different effect on the environment. At the same time, you have life already entrenched on the planet, meaning that it's not just one or two species, it's thousands of species like we see today in different niches. You know, the Earth always has different niches. So each of them has developed some set of innovative ways to deal with one or other condition. So when the punctuation or the event happen of one or another type, then there is always someone in that large population that has had that innovation ready to go, shovel ready, so to say. So I was wondering, that's the question to you, is whether you can think of this as a kind of an interplay between the uh, active evolution mechanisms that you describe in your book, plus the innovation of the large number of different populations on a planet in which the different conditions, you know, by definition, are there all the time. So I think that's a great way to think about it, Dimitar. And in fact, as, as you know, there are millions of species and uh, their interplay is and, and the ecological niches they create or take away from each other are just as, uh, as important and in most cases, in fact, are dominant over geological or atmospheric or temperature niches. They, they do interact, but absolutely the, the predisposition, the genetic predisposition of new capabilities of genes that are either barely utilized or unutilized that then all of a sudden become much more useful with these changing evolutionary niches that are determined by other species, that that very rapid interplay is as much 
or a bigger driver of feedback-driven evolution as just temperature, atmospheric composition, or, or other geological or radiation effects. So wouldn't that be then a way in which we can evaluate the time, the necessary time it takes for uh, the first emergence of life, whether it's multiple emergencies, but the emergence of life to the point where there is enough genetic innovation to survive the next giant impact or the next volcanic eruption. So in other words, the environment is punctuated by those events, and there is a characteristic timescale in between them. And so that may be what is the difference between an emergence of some life which is extincted versus the emergence of a diverse biosphere which essentially was never fully extinct. That's a good question. Uh, in my perspective, that time scale itself has changed and, and in fact is speeding up um, very rapidly. So early evolution, when there were no active biological feedback mechanisms to drive evolution, in, in my concept and thinking, the only thing we had at the beginning of evolvable macromolecules that could store information in an RNA world, for instance, were in the absence of active evolutionary processes or enzymes that could modify RNA genes, probably were random mutations, which are very inefficient in my thinking. So the time scale of evolution has been was very slow initially. It took us billions of years, about two and a half to three billion years or more before we came to multi to eukaryotic cells with the nucleus and then to multicellular life even later. And however, when eukaryotic life, unicellular life, later on biofilms and then differentiated multicellular organisms developed active feedback mechanisms to accelerate evolution. Evolvability as a fitness trait evolved itself. The time scales shortened during which you could react to these events. So if there were, and we don't know that because we don't always have data, if three billion years ago there was a massive volcano eruption and a lot of the simple unicellular life was extinct at that time, much of it probably didn't have the evolvability to respond quickly. And it, the recovery may have been very, very much slower. Compare that with the Cam Cambrian explosion uh, when multicellularity came along and after one of those massive volcanic eruptions and, and therefore major extinction events, we then had very rapid evolvability from genetic predisposition to active feedback mechanisms that can derive phenotype adaptation for Darwin's natural selection and eventually codifying that into the long-term protected uh, gene and DNA storage. So with, with evolvability evolving itself, the evolutionary processes evolving and accelerating themselves, the resilience of Earth during an impact or major extinction event is dramatically higher to where today Earth is nearly... It, you'd have to melt away the planet and maybe in 5 billion years ago, maybe that will happen. But right now, life is essentially, a, un, you cannot extinguish life on Earth. It will continue even if it's a 10 miles deep. 
but mostly because of the evolution of these highly evolvable mechanisms that can that that are so flexible. What you just said makes a lot of sense, but to put it into more simplistic terms, over the course of evolution, the evolutionary process has gotten more efficient, perhaps, and, and better at re-radiating after these massive exactly. extinction events. Yeah, much more efficient. So each time that there is a massive extinction event, the life that remains is better suited to then readapt to the Earth that exists post-shock. That's, that's a great way of summarizing it. Yeah. So thank you again for joining us for the 10th episode of Origins and Evolution. This conversation will uh, be continued in the next and 11th episode that should be coming out a few weeks after this one. But we look forward to seeing you then again. So thank you for joining us. Mm-hmm.